0: Turn to Luke chapter 12, if you would, please. And uh, who's doing the offering this morning? Will y'all go ahead and do that right now while I'm talking? Doing the offering right now. I I was thinking, uh, you know, before I began the message this morning, I had some housekeeping stuff, and I realized now I've got some worship stuff I need to talk about. It's not housekeeping stuff because that just kind of sounds like just kind of some routine, mundane, trivial things. But actually, I've got some worship stuff to to deal with first. And this visual that you have that's going in front of you right now is um, the visual for what I what I want to look at. Beginning in verse thirteen. This is not the sermon. This is just a a worship issue. Someone in the crowd said to him, Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. And he said to them, Man, who made me a judge or arbiter or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, Take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. And he told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully, and he thought to himself, "What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. Got this abundance of crops, and man, these little old grain bins that I've got right now—they're just not cutting it anymore. I mean, I got—I got another car. I need a bigger garage, or I got." And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. We had an elders meeting uh, Wednesday night. <coughs> Funniest thing happened in elders meeting, and that wasn't funny at the time. But what's developed since then has just been really funny for me to think back. The four of us are sitting in there. Ron Perone joined us. He's now at Commerce Community church, but he was he's still kind of a functional effort, uh, elder of Crosspoint in some ways, and we were talking, and Steve has been doing some figuring. He's had Rhonda capturing some things for us, and for those of you who aren't members, you may be alarmed by what you're about to hear, but that's okay. I'm okay with you being alarmed, because you get to see what membership at Crosspoint's all about. Rhonda's doing some figuring and capturing some things for us, and what she found of our 80 or 90 families, that's the way we look at our members. I don't know how many members we've got, but we've got 80 or 90 families, something like that. Maybe 35 of those families are giving at all. At all. And maybe 25 of those 80 or 90 families are giving regularly. We sat in that elders' meeting and just looked at each other like, you got to be kidding me. I thought to myself, man, I came to be part of a new church because I want to be part of a people that are different. When I was in the Marine Corps, I had a quote that fueled my service in the Marine Corps. It was by a guy named, an Italian uh, troop leader named Garibaldi. Here's Here's how the quote went. He said, I offer neither pay nor provisions nor quarters. I offer hunger, force marches, battle, and death. And oh yeah, he said, hunger. Did I say that? Hunger, battle, force marches, and death. And then he said, let him who loves his country with his heart and not his lips only follow me. And homeboy's just talking about something temporal, like his country. I thought about that quote when I was in in the aftermath of what we were kind of considering there as elders, and I'm thinking, man, I don't want to be part of a church where people are just paying lip service to this godness of Him being Lord over everything. Are you kidding me? The thing that we were just shocked at is the membership, people who, in a yearly way, recommit to one another and to the Lord in our membership covenant that talks about participating financially in the ministry of Crosspoint Fellowship. And I'm sitting here baffled at the thought of people who can drop their kids off week after week. People who can sit at the table week after week and enjoy the fruit of this ministry. And yet not participate in it and not fuel it at all. Just suck on it. That's called a parasite. And in my world, I think that's called a tick. Hey, we had not gotten where we've gotten by not shooting straight. I told Scott this morning, I said, dude, Crosspoint is built on shooting straight and being genuine and authentic with each other. So I'm going to shoot straight with you. Those of you who are not participating financially in the ministry of Crosspoint and you're thinking, man, I think I'll give my time instead, you know. I wonder if Ananias and Sapphira were thinking, hey, we're going to make up for this shortage by... We can work in the nursery a little bit more, Peter. <laughs> it's all right. It's all good. We got dreams. We got hopes. We got plans for that, Peter. You might think right now you think, man, we must be hurting financially. We're doing fine. We're right on our budget. We're maybe three or four thousand dollars behind something like a three hundred fifty thousand dollar budget for 2008 to track right on on budget it's not a money issue this is a faithlessness issue i'm going to tell you in front of visitors family if you are families members in covenant with this people and you're being faithless and unfaithful right now shame on you and you're enjoying the benefits of this ministry Shame on you. I hope you're convicted. If you wait until you can afford it, you'll never afford it. Never. I'm just going to try and wait till I get out of this bill. How about selling some junk? <laughs> How about that? Homeboy right here, he's got money coming in. Call it economic stimulus money. I don't care what you call it. But he's got all this extra grain coming in. I'm going to go build me a bigger barn. And he says, fool, your soul is demanded of you. This ain't about us having a shortfall. This is about us being faithless. Many of the families across Crosspoint Fellowship. I'm ashamed of that. You know what? I'd rather have 35 families that are all here. And I'm going to tell you right now, if you're determined to continue being a tick, find a new church home. Go suck off somebody else's people. That'll save our space issues. I mean it. If you're mad right now, if you're a member of Cross Point Fellowship and you're being unfaithful and you're mad, you can leave right now. I'm ashamed of you. And I hope you're convicted. Let me pray before we climb into this passage. Lord, I hope that what I just shared penetrates hard, selfish hearts. And I hope that there are people that are professing you as Savior and Lord and they are not rich toward you, that they are ashamed and convicted about buying the best beer, buying the best cigars, buying the best cars, building on to bigger houses, putting in pools, going on the best vacations, and not being rich toward you. I'm ashamed of that. As a representative of this people, I ask your forgiveness, Lord. And I know that I cannot convict hearts, but I know that you can arrest your people with faithlessness. Lord, I pray that you'll be honored by straight shooting, straight shooting dealings with issues like this. Because, Lord, purify our worship. I'm ashamed of the fact that we've been coming to your table half-heartedly, at least about... 60% of us. Lord, purify us and make us all there. Lord, I pray in these next few minutes that this message will be in keeping with what we've just heard as fellow slaves of Christ. That we will see how temporary we are here. That we'll see how wholeheartedly with reckless abandon, we are to serve you. And that as a result of what we encounter this morning, that will be saltier, that will be brighter, and that will be a sweeter aroma to the people in this community. And all of that for your glory. So that people smell you and that people see the light of a Christ adoring people that are not paying you with their lips only. pray that you'll find us all here in these next few minutes. In Christ's name we pray, amen. You know, I realize some of you have been here for a while. Maybe that's the first time you've ever been shot straight with. Some of y'all have been here a while. You know that happens sometimes. Some of y'all might be here for the first time going, what have I gotten myself into just this morning? I want you to know it's love behind that. If you're short in God, I'm telling you, you're hurting yourself. Christy and I want to, man, I'm telling you, we, we try and lead out in this. About a year ago, I came under conviction that we weren't giving our first fruits. We were tithing and even above beyond tithing. But we were waiting until the end of the month writing that check. And I was giving it to Rondo on Mondays. And then I thought, I'm even convicted about that. Because this is where we gather corporately and worship. <laughs> Why are we not doing this here? And why is it not the first check that I write when money goes into my checking account? Why is it not the first fruits? And I'm just going to tell you, I don't know how God does it, but I know that God owns math. He made math. Because right now we're looking at it, and we're given, and we're giving above and beyond tithe, we're given toward this imaginary building and tithe, and we're going, how do we have all this left over? And then we go, oh, yeah, God owns math. It's worship stuff, not housekeeping stuff. John chapter 13. Let's climb right into the text. This message is on slavery fellow slaves. John chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, he rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments. Taking a towel, he tied it around his waist, and then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? And Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand, but afterward you will understand. And Peter said to him, You shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered him, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. And Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, The one who's bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, Not all of you are clean. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Last week we considered this story. This is hours before Jesus went to the cross. Just hours before him. We looked at this last week from the perspective of being in the upper room, looking down on Jesus. Our perspective of being in the throne room, looking down on the upper room. And we listened, we looked at this whole movement. What took place while we heard myriads and myriads of angels singing. While we saw the white-haired 24 regals falling on their face, worshiping God first, the Father. And then in Revelation chapter 5, worshiping the Lamb In chapter 4, they're saying, Worthy are you, God. In chapter 5, they're saying, Worthy are you, Lamb. We looked at this upper room foot washing from the perspective of the throne room, and it changes everything. Instead of the initial question, Why is Jesus washing feet? The initial question becomes, Why is God washing feet? And then it kind of morphed and even changed into, Why does God have a knee? (gasps) Huh. What is God doing with a knee bending? Why isn't he up there having the myriads and myriads singing for him? Why isn't he up there with the elder, the white-haired elders around him, kneeling or on their faces worshiping? Why doesn't he have the creatures that sing holy, holy, holy? Why aren't they up there singing for him? Why is he here? What's he doing with a knee? Huh. <gasps> I spend my thought all week, what are you doing with a knee, God? And the thing, I think that confusion, that amazement, that wonder, if you felt that at all between last week and between what you considered this week and what you're considering right now, then I think what that's called is worship. It may be the first time you've ever done it. I think that's called worship where you're going, wait a second, that's awesome. Huh? <gasps> That doesn't figure. How in the world could he be doing that? Here's a word that you may not have ever used before. I bet you've heard it. You may not know what it means, but this is an appropriate word for this setting. It's called a conundrum. Hey, can you kid me? That's a puzzle. <laughs> this is one awesome, holy, real conundrum. We're supposed to marvel at this. We're supposed to look at it from the distance of the throne room. And what we're supposed to see is an infinite act of humility for God to even show up. <laughs> and we've got to consider that before we ever even consider what's he doing. We've got to ask the question, what's he doing here? God. We had to look at this from the throne room to really get the oomph that we're supposed to get from this kneeling, foot-washing God that looks up at you and charges you with washing feet too. You've got to realize who that came from. It wasn't just that good man. Because otherwise, it's just kind of a moral message. Hey, be a servant to one another. Yeah, give it an old one-two. Give it an old try, you know. That's a moral message. But it should be a life message fueled by worship. Like, oh man, God showed up and washed feet. And then God looked at me and said, You serve and wash feet too. Changes everything. Next week, we're going to deal with the charge. You go wash feet. But we're not ready to go there yet. Today, we're going to deal with the character of what God has done. We're going to deal with just. Considering that in removing his outer garments, what he did in the upper room, he rose from supper. Listen, listen to these verbs, these shocking verbs. He rose from supper, he laid aside his outer garments, taking a towel. He tied it around his waist and then he poured water into a basin and he began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He rose. He laid aside. He took a towel. He tied it. He poured water. He washed dirty, nasty, stinky, fisherman feet. Every last toe. To include Judas's feet. Does that leave you amazed? Wait a second. What's he doing washing Judas's feet? Now it's really getting radical. He washed their feet, and then he wiped them with the towel. This movement, these shocking verbs of verses four and five, are textbook. Here's the word of the day: textbook. Slavery. They are textbook slavery. And you got to know, too, that this isn't just a time filler. It wasn't, okay, we're waiting for the second course of the meal for the Lord's Supper. So, you know, and and it also wasn't because their feet stunk. And, you know, I want to enjoy this meal. And, dude, these guys, they stank. That wasn't the issue, and it wasn't a time filler. Jesus didn't fill time unnecessarily. I bet when he preached, he never went, um, that's a verbal time filler. The guys that hadn't spoken much yet, um, and their brains are going, what am I going to say next? Jesus, I, I suspect, never had a verbal time filler, and I know in his actions, in his movements, he never had a physical time filler. Everything he did was deliberate and intentional. And this movement was for a very real purpose. He taught doing everything. Everything he did was purposeful. He's teaching relentlessly. He's illustrating relentlessly. And that's what he's doing right here. This foot washing was to etch. That's the word that I came up with. Another word I came up with is tattoo. He wants to etch and tattoo in their memory the character of the living God. Not some little lame moral message. He wants to etch and tattoo in their memory what it looks like for God to show up and to kneel and to wash feet. He wants them to deal with the conundrum of those crazy, shocking verbs of verses 4 and 5, and then they go, well, wait a second, this is God because he raises from the dead, and then he ascends to the Father. Well, this was God that did all this. He wants them to deal and to be changed by dealing with the conundrum of all that power, all that power that created everything, that scooped the oceans, piled up the mountains, that cast the stars, getting down on his knees and washing their nasty feet. He wants them to be changed by dealing with that. And I think if you take this in, really take this in, from any level, whether it's the throne room to the upper room, or whether it's just the ground level, within the upper room, where we see him kneeling and washing feet, it's a pretty lowly movement, and you can't help but marvel. If you rightly take it in. And I have to ask myself a couple questions. The first question is, is Christ showing his disciples something that we may not have really observed? I'm going to ask that question again. Is Christ showing his disciples something that we may not have really taken in? We may have read that passage a thousand times and said, oh yeah, let me go wash feet. Let me go serve. But have we really taken it in? And did this impact of this moment, these shocking verbs, the water and the hands and the towel on their very feet, impact them in a way that hasn't reached contemporary Christianity yet? Has it? I wonder. These shocking verbs... Definitely, whether they've impacted contemporary Christianity or not, they definitely impacted the early church. Let me show you something. Let's go on a little journey. Just a few books we're going to look at. Just the first verse or so in a lot of these books. Romans chapter 1, verse 1. These words are written by Paul. Now, Paul was not there in the upper room. He was not one of the original disciples. He had a Damascus Road experience and... Jesus revealed himself to him. But he was taught about all these things, likely from firsthand experience. Maybe Peter taught him. So he got the straight scoop from the guys that were there. And let's see how these shocking verbs impacted him. Paul, a... Servant of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. That word servant there that we read over so easily is the word in the original language, the word doulos, which is the word slave. Get it for the weight of it. It's the word slave. Paul, a slave of Christ Jesus, called to be an apostle, set apart for the gospel of God. Turn to Philippians chapter 1. Just a few books over. Paul another letter written by Paul he includes his pal his teammate his fellow church planner his young pastor that he's equipping to serve as an elder and to plant churches he says Paul and Timothy slaves of Christ Jesus there it is again so we got Paul that thinks of himself as a slave. We've got Timothy. I don't expect that Timothy objected to that intro. Uh, Paul, don't put that. I don't really feel good about slavery. I don't like that title. I expect Paul to sit there going, yeah, please put that down. I'm with you, Paul. Fellow slave with you. Look at Colossians chapter 4. That's the next book over right after Philippians. Colossians chapter 4, verse 7. This is the final greeting section where Paul is ending the book of Colossians, the letter of Colossians, and he's saying, oh, by the way, tell these guys hi. (laughs) Or tell them to press on. Tell them to keep doing what they're doing. Listen to what he says. Tychicus will tell you about all my activities. He's a beloved brother and a faithful minister and a fellow slave, doulos, in the Lord. There he is. Look over at chapter 4, verse 12. Epaphras who is one of you, a slave, a doulos of Christ Jesus, greets you, always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. Turn to James chapter 1, verse 1. James is on back a few books, right after the book of Hebrews. This one's especially remarkable to me, considering who wrote this book. James start this, starts this letter, he says, James A. Doulas, a slave, take it in, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. I was talking with Morris about this earlier in the week, and Morris said, man, that's amazing he didn't say brother of Jesus Christ. Wouldn't you? Man, that's going to add some authority to your letter, wouldn't you think? You're going to write a letter to somebody You say, hey, man, I'm Jesus' bro. You better listen to what I got to say. He does not say brother of Jesus Christ. He says slave of Jesus Christ. That's pretty amazing. Knowing how brothers get along, that's pretty remarkable. I look over at Second Peter. Chapter 1, verse 1. It says, Simeon Peter, or Simon Peter, this is the same Peter that objected to Christ washing his feet here in John chapter thirteen. He says, "A slave, a doulos, an apostle of Jesus Christ." Now look over at the book of Jude. You almost done with the Bible back there. You have a little tiny book, Jude. Jude chapter one. Now that's only one chapter, verse one. Can't go wrong there. Jude, a slave of Jesus Christ and a brother of James. I don't know if that's hitting you yet or if you're realizing that over the the landscape of the New Testament that all these jokers that are writing these letters are identifying themselves as slaves. Slaves. Paul, Timothy, Tychicus, Epaphras, James, Peter, and Jude. What you've got to appreciate is that these guys weren't like indentured servants or something. They weren't real slaves. That wasn't like their job. They also didn't work at Chili's and deliver food or anything like that where they might consider themselves kind of slave-like labor. These guys weren't like that. In fact, Paul was a Jew among Jews. He studied under Gamaliel. That's like going to Harvard. Harvard. He's like the Jewish Harvard grad. And he's calling himself a slave. Look just look at who these guys were. Paul, a Jew among Jews. They were upstanding men like young like Timothy. Timothy was a solid dude. He wasn't a slave. Then there's carpenter sons like James. A carpenter son, yes, but not a slave identifying himself as a slave and then there's fishermen like peter can you imagine the man that's going to be a fisherman i'm just saying he's a free spirit peter looked like a free spirit in every way (laughs) and he's calling himself a slave i think these shocking verbs of chapter 13 had some sort of impact on him and then there's tychicus tychicus was what's called an amanuensis for paul that's a scribe it means he could read and write He wasn't some chump. Being able to read and write in this day, man, this was a pretty special deal. A learned one. He wasn't a slave. He was an amanuensis. These guys are not slaves by trade. They're people just like you and me in their context. They're just like you and me. That's the thing I want you to get. These guys are just regular Joes. Regular people. With dreams and in-laws and bills and appointments. I don't know if they had dental appointments. They had some kind of appointments. They had budgets, I bet. They're real people referring to themselves as slaves. I just want to imagine. I want you to imagine what it would be like if we didn't identify ourselves this way. I may have run all the visitors off, so I, I, I may not have anybody referred to visitor-wise, but if you're a visitor that hung in here for the last few minutes for the introduction this morning, I want you to imagine if I have the chance to meet you afterwards, and I come up and shake your hand, I say, hi, I'm Ben McGraw, I'm husband of Christy, father of Evan, Luke, and Daniel, and one of the elders of Cross Point Fellowship, and a slave of Jesus Christ. Would you be taken aback? I would be if somebody introduced themselves as a slave of Jesus Christ. You might think, man, this dude's part of a cult. <laughs> or you might at least think, man, they really drive him hard here at cross point fellowship for the <laughs> calls himself a slave. That guy must not like his job. His calling better yet. That's the way these guys identify themselves in their correspondence. I'm a slave of Jesus Christ, not brother slave of jesus christ my question is how did these dudes get here as i'm hearing their language and i'm thinking okay i want to think like i'm a slave if these new testament writers all thought like hey they were slaves of jesus christ i have to ask the question how they got here so let's turn first to exodus chapter 21 here's some possibilities of how they got here here's some things that could have contributed Maybe, just maybe, they were paying attention when God gave instructions on loving slavery. I don't mean loving slavery, like, oh, I like slavery. I mean loving as in the character of slavery. God gave some very specific instructions right after this Ten Commandments, which it says in my Bible in Galatians that the law is a tutor that leads us to Christ. And right after this this law proper, Ten Commandments, as the law is explained and fleshed out, in the next verses, listen to this passage. It says, now these are the rules that you shall set before them. This is Exodus chapter 21, verse 1. Listen to this. This is the the laws of how to deal with slaves. When you buy a Hebrew slave, he shall serve six years, and in the seventh year he shall go out free for nothing. He serves you six years, he can go free. Okay, listen to how it develops. It says, if he comes in single, he shall go out single. If he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master gives him a wife, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out alone. Listen to this next verse. But if the slave plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children... I will not go out free. Then his master will bring him to God, and he shall bring him to the door or the doorpost, and his master shall bore his ear through through with an awl. <laughs> He's going to bore a big hole in his ear with an awl. What kind of servant is going to do that? Okay, I'm going to serve, be as your slave for six years, but I'm going to love you so much that I'm going to let you poke holes in me. And in fact, I'll be your slave forever. And his master shall bore his ear through with an awl, and he shall be his slave forever. As Paul referred to himself as a slave, I can't help but wonder if Paul was thinking about being a student of the law, being a good Jew. Remember, he went to Harvard. He stuttered under Gamaliel. He knew this passage. Do you think he looked at Jesus with Jesus' version of an awl looking like nails? It says he loved them to the end. He said, "Put it all through my ear." I wonder if Jesus, as he's washing feet, he's looking around saying, "Anybody got an all?" And then he thought, "Oh no, a cross will do. A cross will do tomorrow morning." I'll one up the slave, taking something in the ear and cartilage, and I'll take it through bone and flesh, and I'll die through the process, and be your slave forever. So as these guys are thinking of themselves as slaves, I can't help but wonder if they were impacted in some way by images like that that the Father gave them to gnaw on for 1,500 years before Jesus showed up. Here's another possibility. Maybe they listened to Christ. Turn to Luke chapter 12. How did these guys reach Slaveville? How did they get there? Maybe they read their Old Testament. Maybe they looked for Christ in the Old Testament. Or maybe they listened to the very words of Christ. Luke chapter 12, verse 35. Remember, this is the same chapter that I just read from before the sermon began. Do you recognize that? It's all talking about money. I know people are so turned off by talking about money. I know it, man. (laughs) I'm made of the same stuff you are. Jesus talked about it all the time. And he warned those who were following him not to fall prey to the trappings. That's not your money. That's his money. All of it. Not just some of it. That's the whole tone of it. And the people of God are to be different. He goes on from this thing that says, be rich toward God. And in verse 22, he says, don't be anxious about your life, what you'll eat, not about your body, what you'll put on. For life is more than food and the body more than clothing. Don't worry about all that stuff. Just consider the ravens. He goes down, he keeps teaching on this. He gets down to verse 32. Fear not, little flock, for it's your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Don't worry about old navy. Man, don't worry about that extra room on your house. (laughs) Don't fret over those things. If you have to build it, just knock it out. But don't live for it. You're inheriting the kingdom. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in heavens that do not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. That's why I will get in your face, membership. And deal with you about this issue. Because if your treasure's in the world, we got to deal with that. That's why since Wednesday, I was like, oh, I'm okay. Be pretty mad at me. Maybe we'll be smaller. Maybe we'll be truer. Maybe we'll be a salty, bright, aromatic people that are treasuring God. Listen to what he says. He goes on. He tells the disciples, he says, Dudes, Stay dressed for action. In other words, have your loins girded. Like on Passover night, when the midnight is coming and the destroyer is coming, and he told the father of the household, Hey man, you better have your staff in hand and your loins girded because midnight of deliverance is coming. You better live as if you're leaving. It's all tied together, the tone of what he's saying here. I realize what I dealt with at the beginning of this sermon as I continue to refine this sermon, is Paul part of it? (laughs) Listen to what he says. He says, Stay dressed for action with your loins girded and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. He says, Blessed are those slaves. It's the same word. Blessed are those slaves who are saying, Oh, the master's coming back. I won't be ready when he comes back. Blessed are those slaves whom the master finds awake when he comes. He says, Truly I say to you, he will dress himself. This is the master. The master will dress himself for service. In other words, he will put on slave clothes. I sound like John 13. He'll take off his outer garments, he'll wrap a towel around himself, he'll grab a basin, and he will get down and he will serve you. Listen, for those servants that are ready, those slaves, he says he will dress himself for service when he comes back, and he will have those servants, those ready servants, recline at the table, and he will come and serve them. How do we know he's talking about himself being the master? Because look down in verse 40. He says, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. He's the Master. That's commentary on John 13. He illustrated that passage with John 13. I don't know that any of the disciples made the connection until maybe later. Going, he was describing himself. And that's going to be his character. What it sounds like is for the ready servant here in 2008 who's living like we're leaving. For the one who has connected these previous paragraphs and have placed our faith in him and are living for midnight deliverance. When he comes back, those servants, he will serve. (gasps) That's the scandal of this whole story. What it sounds like to me is this Lord that the elders fall on their face for, this lamb that stands there as if slain, this Lord that has those creatures around the throne that are hovering around God saying, holy, holy, holy all day long, who are saying now, worthy is the lamb about Jesus, that that lamb will serve us. So the scandal continues. He will have a servant nature forever. That's scandalous. I can't help but wonder if those sort of realities impacted these people, these New Testament believers, to where they refer to themselves as, I'm a slave of Christ. Ben McGraw, husband of Christie, father of Evan, Luke, and Daniel, pastor of Crosspoint Fellowship, and slave of Christ Jesus. Or maybe... If they didn't see it in the Old Testament, if that didn't change them, if that didn't prepare them to think like that, if they didn't actually see it in Christ and hear it in Christ, which I know they did, maybe they just heard it from the New Testament saints. Turn to Acts chapter 4. This picture just amazed me. (laughs) And I'm going to explain to you in a minute, for those of you who are not yet amazed, that hopefully you can be a little bit concerned about that. If you're just kind of, man, what time's lunch? Hopefully you'll be arrested with the fact that you're not amazed and what that means, actually. But just try and be amazed with me for a minute at what it says right here about these New Testament saints. In Acts chapter 4, Peter and John... Peter and John are coming back to these new believers, the new church, really the charter members of the church, period. Not a church, the charter members of the church, period. The first members. Peter and and John are taken and then they're released and they go to their friends and they report what happened. And when all their friends heard it, the first church, the first church ever, the first church lifted their voices together and they said these words, If they all came out of every mouth at the same time, I don't know how that happened. Or if somebody just kind of recorded the general gist of what they said, I don't know what happened, but listen to what God represents as being the message of the first church. Listen to how they're thinking. They're saying, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, your slave, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and his anointed. For truly in this city, see, they're still in Jerusalem. This is about two months after Jesus is crucified. It was expensive to become a Christian at that time. I don't mean money expensive. I mean, you may die. Your Lord that you're now worshiping was just nailed to a cross publicly eight weeks, seven or eight weeks earlier. And these people, here's what they say. Truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed God, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the uh, the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your slaves, as in us, to continue to speak your word with all boldness, while you stretch out your hand to heal, and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. I want you to see, you can miss what, what we just read. You can miss it because you had not read it before. But let me draw out three things for you. In verse 27, they refer to Jesus as the Holy Servant Jesus. And then in verse 29, they refer to themselves as your slaves. We are your slaves. And then again in verse 30, at the end, they refer to Jesus as the Holy Servant Jesus. See, it's through their viewing Jesus as servant that they viewed themselves as slaves. And look what happens next. Look how awesome this is to God. However lame it may be to you and the world and anybody else, here's what God thinks in verse 31. When they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. However lame the world says servanthood is and slavery, God says, I approve, I'm going to shake the house. Now you've gotten somewhere, people of God, when you're seeing my holy servant, Jesus, you're seeing yourselves as slaves and you've climbed into this slave sandwich. Like you're the meat slave and... Recognizing the holy servant is the buns. Now you're getting somewhere. I'm going to shake the house and something awesome is going to happen. God showed up. I don't know where they got it. Whether it was reading their Old Testament or whether it was listening to the words of Jesus or whether it was being around the people of God and seeing how they referred to God and how they referred to themselves, whatever the case They got the point that we are slaves because Jesus was a slave. The Alpha Slave. And it impacted who they were. It became who they were. It wasn't just some novel thought. It developed and fueled their identity. His slavery was remembered and I'm convinced it made it's what made them salty and bright and aromatic eight weeks after Jesus was nailed to a cross. It's what made them different. You want to be part of a salty, bright, aromatic church? Bathe in his slavery. Ask God, God, make me a slave. Teach me to see myself as a stinking slave. Show me how to be a slave, so that you'll be glorified and enjoy. How about that for evangelism? We'll deal with that next week too. This servanthood of this Christ was like no one else. This servanthood, this infinite humility, has never seen been seen before or since that even comes close. This humility is captivating and otherworldly. It's got to come from somewhere else. Turn to Romans chapter 15. Here's where we're going to end this morning. As you're turning there, I'm going to share with you, as I've been preparing this sermon this week, I've been considering... The nature, you know, that's what I I said. Today, we're just considering the nature and character of what this God, the Son, did. And I've been contrasting our God, Jesus, the Son, God, the Son, Jesus, with the other man-made gods. Listen to these thoughts. Here's what I found in examining these man-made gods that that man makes up. I found that they have a whole lot less power than our Jesus, because knowing that Jesus is the one in whom all things are held together. Knowing that all things were made through Jesus. (laughs) Knowing that all things are in his hand. When I compare him to the man-made gods, I see these man-made gods that kind of have, they're the God of X. (laughs) Not everything. Not the whole alphabet. They're the God of X. And here's the God of M. They have a whole lot less power. And there's no even glimmer of servanthood. There's no shade of lowliness in any of them because they're man-made gods. Here's the first guy, a guy named Moloch. Not a guy, a god, little g-god named Moloch. If you've read your Old Testament, you know that Moloch, the worship of Moloch involved offering your children to the fire. They think Moloch was kind of this bronze statue that was hollow. So they made a fire inside the statue, and the arms sort of set over the fire but the heat would come up in the arms and what they would do is they would place the child oftentimes the firstborn in the hands or the arms of this steaming scalding hot beyond scalding hot statue and these kids would be roasted until they just fought they couldn't fight anymore and they just plopped right over into the fire That's who Moloch was. And I wanted to find out what Moloch was the god of. And I found that he's kind of the god of child sacrifice. And I'm like, wow, you know, he doesn't have that much power, really, if you think about it. He's the god of child sacrifice, and all you do is you sacrifice your child to him. He's not a very impressive god. It's a man-made god. And then I thought about Dagon. Dagon was the god of the Philistines. Dagon was the nature of. God. Ooh. <laughs> Impressive. He's the God of nature. In fact, from his waist down, he was a fish. Like a man made. Not a mermaid. No, a man. A merman. <laughs> He's a merman. He's the nature deity. But I don't see any servanthood in him. I don't see slavery in Dagon. Then I thought, okay, let me look at the Greek and Roman gods. How about Artemis? Artemis was this female goddess that they worshipped in Ephesus. She was the Roman version of the Greek god Diana. And I considered Artemis. She is the mistress and protector of wildlife. Another very impressive one. Protector of wildlife. She's the goddess of hunting and of the moon. And there's no shade or glimmer of servanthood in her, because she's a man-made God. Then I thought about Apollo. Apollo is the god of light and sun. He's also the god of archery, a little lesser thing, less important. Any of you archers, you know, that are really into that? He's the God of light and sun, but also the God of archery. He's the God of medicine and healing, but there's no shade or glimmer or even a little hint of servanthood in him and lowliness in him because man made him up. Then I thought about Zeus and Hermes. These guys were wanderers on the earth. Zeus specifically was the God of sky and weather. Anytime Zeus is depicted, he's depicted in one of two poses, either standing or striding forward with a thunderbolt leveled in his raised hand, or he's seated in majesty. And there's no shade of servanthood or slavery in him (coughs) because man made him up. Here's what the reality is about the man-made God's the man-made gods had much less power and demanded much more, and they had no grace, and they certainly didn't and wouldn't wash feet. <laughs> that thought would be scandalous. Who would make up a god like that? That wouldn't sell. Right? If you're going to make up a god, you want people to follow this god, that just wouldn't sell. Come serve, come, come, worship my lowly foot-washing god. Oh, impressive. Let's make one that doesn't have a shade of that. That's what they've done. That would be scandalous to have a foot washing God. That's not a gospel man would make up because it wouldn't sell and people wouldn't like it. But then there's our God. Romans chapter 15, verse 8. It says, For I tell you that Christ became a servant to the circumcised to show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for His mercy. I want to unpack that for you because you can miss the gravity of that. This is one of the most awesome passages on this issue of slavery that I've ever read. I mentioned last week that man wouldn't make up this gospel, that it self-validates, it self-authenticates. It supports itself because man would not make up a gospel like this. And in fact, here's biblical evidence for that. Look what he says. He says, I tell you, Roman church, that Christ became a servant to the circumcised, or the Jew, to show, in other words, Christ did John 13. To show God's truthfulness in order to confirm the promises given to the patriarchs and in order that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. So he did John 13 in order that you might believe. What hit me square in the face is this realization that the outer garment-removing, towel-wearing, basin-holding, foot-washing, foot-drying, servanthood, the slavery of Christ validates and authenticates the gospel because the natural man doesn't like a God that washes feet. He's yucky. The natural man wants some sort of power display. I'm not impressed by foot-washing. I bet this foot-washing God couldn't even keep someone from wrongfully accusing him of a crime. I bet this lowly foot-washing God couldn't even keep someone from spitting in his face and nailing him to a cross. I bet this lowly slave foot-washing God couldn't even get himself down from a cross once crucified. Sound familiar? He's so low and so lame, I'd rather have Barabbas. He knows he's a man. I'll take him over the lowly slave, foot washer. Barabbas isn't lowly. What hit me square in the eyes from this passage in 15.8 is that it's his very servanthood the very thing that you're thinking, I don't know. If I'm gonna share Christ with somebody, I don't think I necessarily want to show them his, that extreme loneliness. I want to show them doing something awesome, not realizing that that's the extreme act of awesomeness, not realizing that's the heart of our God revealed, not really realizing that is the illustration of who God is. This lowliness. And it's this servanthood that validates the truth of the gospel. I will tell you this. If you're turned off by his slavery and his servanthood, and you're like, oh man, it's just kind of yucky and boring. I don't know if you're his. I can't diagnose what your eternal destiny is, but I'm going to tell you right now, this is the highlight. (laughs) This is the best it gets. If you're captivated with this slavery, with this servanthood, if you're amazed by it, if you're saying, dude, that's just awesome, then that's called worship. If that's new for you, then you're worshiping newly. That's what our Bible says to do. That's what we're supposed to do. Before we deal with the charge where God levels His eyes at us and He says, see as I'm serving, you serve. Before we deal with that charge, today I wanted to deal with the character of what He did. we got to really take it in. Just kind of imagine looking down on His graceful head as He kneels before you. Imagine looking over and seeing his outer garments laid across a table. Imagine the towel around his waist. Imagine the basin. Imagine the vase full of water. Hear the water poured over your feet. Feel the coolness of it. And then feel the towel gathering your feet together and dabbing your feet dry. Marvel with me at the remarkable one true God, the Holy Servant. Let me pray. God, I don't know how we couldn't be all there. We're just not reading our Bibles or something. Or we're just so distracted, or busy, or captivated with other things. But I confess in front of this people that I've never really considered the infinite condescension of Christ. I've been aware of it, but I've never really considered the distance. I don't know that I've ever really been amazed that you had a knee. And God, I don't know that I've ever really marveled at your slavery and embraced that. Lord, I pray that today that not only will I embrace it, but that Christie and my kids will embrace it. I pray for the shepherds in this room that are standing here preparing and being equipped to lead families, that they are arrested with the slavery of Christ and that they are begging to be identified as a slave. And I pray for their families that they'll reap the benefits of shepherds with a burden for slavery. Lord, I pray that our worship and our wonder will be fueled by seeing this extreme lowliness. And I pray that it's from that worship and wonder that we will then go and serve Lord, open our eyes to the riches of seeing Christ wash feet. Change our hearts. Pry us from the distractions of the world and orient us on the things that matter. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. It's worship and song.